Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this episode, Michael welcomes Dr. Rodney Reeves, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He's also the author of six books, including what he and Michael are going to be discussing today, Spirituality According to John. Now, through all of the Apostle John's works, a consistent message is woven. Being a Christian is about abiding in Christ and his words. The Gospel of John, the Epistle of 1 John, and the Book of Revelation all begin in the same way, by pointing to the importance of knowing the Word, both written and incarnate. Now, Rodney combines exegesis with spiritual reflection to explore how the only biblical writer to employ three different genres— presents a consistent vision of Christian spirituality. I'm sure you're going to enjoy he and Michael's conversation today, as this is one we at Restoring the Soul have been looking forward to for some time. Now, a quick production note. At some points throughout the conversation, you might hear what sounds like little bells ringing. Well, I've come to determine that it was the microphone scraping against Dr. Reeves' shirt collar. So, I hope it doesn't distract from their insightful conversation. And now without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, I want to welcome to the Restoring the Soul podcast, Dr. Rodney Reeves, who's the author of multiple books. And today we are talking about his book, The Spirituality of, I'm sorry, The Spirituality According to John. How's that for an introduction to get the title wrong? (laughs) You're close enough. Let me start by reading this opening paragraph, because I think it'll set the tone for our conversation. It's in the introduction to the spirituality according to John, and that is titled The Art of Christian Living. You write, there are two kinds of Christians, list makers and storytellers. Answering one question reveals the difference. What does it take to be a Christian? List makers will talk about doctrines you must believe or commandments you must keep. As long as you believe the right things or do the right things, that's what makes you a Christian. Storytellers, on the other hand, will say, let me tell you about my grandmother. That's when I lean in, because I find the art of Christian living far more compelling than a theological argument. It didn't used to be that way, though. When I was a young man, 
I relish the opportunity to jump into the middle of doctrinal scrums over Christian beliefs. But these days, I'd rather hear about an embodied faith, a story that must be imagined to believed. Wow. <laughs> we could we could end the podcast right there, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, first of all, um, I read that, Dr. Reeves, and I, I just stopped. And I thought, I want to sit with that man and hear his story of how that came about, how you went from it not used to be that way to now. Um, I anticipate that how you got from one to the other was in a place of discontent where it wasn't just a academic, whoops, I saw it this way, now I see it this way, but where it's part of your own personal journey. So please jump in about that paragraph and how you became one who lives in this art of Christian living. Well, first of all, Michael, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Um, boy, it's a long story, isn't it? I mean, we start telling our own personal story. I, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised Southern Baptist. Um, and so I grew up hearing uh, the stories of faith, the scriptures being read and preached from faithfully, the songs that we sing, the hymns. I mean, I grew up in Southern California and it was Southern Baptist Church there in Compton, California. For me, uh, faith was very much given to me, right? I mean, I, 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 with parents who bought me my first Bible, taught me really everything, how to pray, why going to church is important, ethics, I mean, everything that the church had to offer, my parents were supportive of. And so, being, but yet still being fairly immersed in that, when God called me to preach the gospel, my parents had never been to college. And so I go away to college and the academic world began to open up the scriptures in ways that I'd never seen before. I mean, for the first time, this book that really was revered and almost magical in my mind <clears throat> became a really human book. I mean, the Jewishness of Jesus came shining through the the humanity of Paul and his frailty comes blaring through the scriptures. And so it was really it was in that moment when I'm seeing how academics could help me read the scriptures better and how immediately begin to inform my faith, then before I know it, um, there were there was a path set before us. And and some of my friends and colleagues began to really hit the doctrine hard and read doctrine, and I did too. But what captured my imagination was how the Bible is primarily a book of stories and then get, being given tools on how to read narrative uh, and and how you enter into the story as if it were like a film, right? I mean, when we go to the movie theater, we'll sit and we'll take in our surroundings. We'll look at the people who are there. We've heard some things about this film. And, and you know, we're very aware of our disconnect from the story. Before you know it, lights go down film starts. And even though it's, it could be even a period piece 200 years ago, you're sucked into the film. You're sucked into the narrative. And before you know it, you start, you know, your palms get sweaty at certain points. You laugh, you engage, you begin to identify with characters. And those kind of experiences, it started happening to me because my professors gave me tools to read the scripture as a living text. You can see these people with your mind's eye. And when I started doing that, I noticed that that the scriptures 
somehow, some way began to take up life in me as if this story is becoming my story. And doctrine is as important as it was and is just did not help me as much in my spiritual growth in day-to-day battles with my own sin, with, with finding my place in the world, my calling, responsibility. I even notice when I preach, people will listen kindly to doctrine and they'll, they'll listen to the lists. But, but when you start preaching the story of scripture, people lean in and, and, and before you know it, the dynamic of God's word begins to be fleshed out as we listen to the story and as we, you know, live the story of the gospel, um, it begins to um, mesh with our life. And I think it's very deliberate. I think this is the, this is the way in which scripture intended to, to work, if you will. And that's why primarily it is a book of stories. It seems to me, um, I've never been Baptist, um, but it seems to me that in many circles, in many denominations, that this idea of getting caught up in the story is not as common as uh, it could be or that personally I would like it to be. And as you said, there's a place for teaching doctrine and theological foundations, but in your delineation between list makers and storytellers, there seems to be almost a fear. Like if we start to tell the story, I mean, there's here's the story of Jesus, and he came to die on the cross so that we could go to heaven. But the story is so much bigger than that, and then the story always comes back to that. Mm-hmm. But I kind of want to ask, does it feel to you as a pastor and an academic that that storytelling is a little more dangerous in the sense of you're not sure where it's going to go and what the Holy Spirit will do with it? That's a really interesting question, Michael. I've never thought of it like that as far as dangerous. In fact, I mean, I, what I emphasize in, in the book is how John relies upon our imagination because he won't tell us what we're supposed to do. He, he keeps telling these stories over and over again and expects us to hear it and figure it out. I'll put it like this. Perhaps fear is a motivation, maybe, because you can't harness a story. Um, You can't make it say what you want it to say. Sometimes stories reveal the messiness of life, right? That we'd rather not think about or talk about. And yet when you read the Bible from from the beginning to the end, there's a lot of messiness in there. And to me, that's what makes it so authentic. It's like the more human it is, the more divine it sounds to my ear that God is revealing not only to ourselves like a mirror, this is, this is the world you live in. Here are the challenges you have, right? But then I begin to see how the revelation of God in these narratives and all these people, especially leading to Christ, and then those who follow Jesus afterwards, how that story then still makes sense to me today. It still addresses the human condition. It still provides hope. And, you know, it's worth believing, I guess. So isn't it true that when we sit down at a table, like your family table, and and you start eating, everyone starts telling their story? We don't we don't gather and start listing propositions. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, let me tell you what I believe today. <laughs> no, I mean it's almost an it's a human inclination. It's so natural. 
that we we start telling stories. We make sense of life with narrative. And it isn't it a brilliant idea. It's brilliant what God has done. Is he just, you know, the scriptures over and over are telling a story after a story after a story. And then there's this narrative arc that people get excited about. When you start pointing how in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a narrative arc that begins to make its way to Jesus. And they see that connect. They go, they go, oh, my goodness, that that's what God's doing in my life. He's taking things in my past. There's a narrative arc. And before I know it, I can see his hand in my life because what is what I'm reading, what I'm hearing is true. And I'm seeing him work it out in my life, too. So it, it could be it could be that for some people it's it causes fear because the thing about doctrine is you can kind of control it. It's very propositional. It's, you know, ABC one, two, three. Um, and narratives are more, more open ended. But I'll throw this in as well. The main way in which Jesus tried to get across to his listeners about the kingdom of God on earth is he told stories. Hmm. And you as know, you he said, told it, stories. Yeah, over and over and over and over again. So as you said in this quote, you said, rather hear about an embodied faith, a story that must be imagined to believe, to be believed. And as you're talking, and back to my point about that it's dangerous, that uh, it's messy, um, imagination is a is a dirty word in some Christian circles, right? Because then it's makeup or it's make-believe or you're just imagining that, you know, that that, that was the Holy Spirit. You know, when you felt tingles on your your arms or something like that. So but imagination really is a category in Scripture because everything is invisible. It's it's either in the past or it's presently invisible. And we need our imagination to see the invisible. If right now I say to our listeners, imagine the Rocky Mountains. Everybody has a picture of that in their mind, even if they've never been there. So talk to me about from a theologian's perspective um, the importance of imagination. It's grounded in the idea, and John's spirituality is predicated on this. It's grounded in the idea that Christ, the word, is experienced through words. Right. Yeah. So, and and, and John's gospel starts with the, this importance. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. And he tells the story that must be heard. And then his... The first letter, one John begins with what was what was what we heard from the beginning, what we'd announced to you, the word of life. And then the revelation begins with the same thing. There's this beatitude that shows up early on. Blessed is the one who reads this, these words and who he, gathers to hear. them. So from the get go, John works with the presumption that Christ, the word incarnate, uh, is experienced through the gathering of his people to hear words. And the thing that we kind of miss is in the first century context, the great majority of people were illiterate. They couldn't read. I mean, our best estimate is probably, you know, five to eight, some even think maybe 10%, but five to 8% of the population were could actually read a few things, uh, just signs. But so we think about that, at least 90 percent of the world were illiterate. They couldn't read a thing. 
And yet here is a religion that comes at you with words. And if you can't read them, then you're going to sit and listen to them. And isn't it true that when people hear, uh, I find audiobooks have become really popular again, or people love to listen to podcasts in our visual age of television. It's amazing to me how, how many people want to hear, right? Audition has become so important. And I think there's something about the way God made us or the way our brains are wired that we love to hear words and then visualize with our own mind's eye. We paint this portrait and even have the faces figured out and the character. We can hear it so that we even feel it. And right. that, that imagination, I think God made us this way because what starts happening is the story becomes your story. You begin to not only see it as a window, but you find yourself inserted in it and it becomes a mirror and you begin to see yourself in, in the story of God's word. And I think he, I think he did it that way on purpose. So therefore, even though going back to your first question, even though early in my life, I loved, uh, you know, doctrine and getting out the propositions and sorting out what we believe that can be really handy. The, the longer I've lived, the longer I've tried to follow Jesus, I realize the more that in, the thing that inspires me more is seeing a life well lived as they are, if you will, a living narrative, the word becoming flesh. And so when I sit down with him, the first thing I ask is, what's your story? And people don't stumble around like, well, what do you mean? What's my story? Oh, they, they, they know exactly what I'm asking. And they start mm. telling me their story. And often that story is a story of redemption. Yeah. And in my business as a counselor and spiritual director, that's also, you know, everything's based upon the fact that people are coming because their story is broken. So people looking for redemption, if, if it's not the story of redemption, it's them looking for redemption and not knowing that that's what they're looking for so often. So this idea of imagination, as you talk about it, it's not something optional. As we're talking, like if I if I think of the word cat, I'm going to have the picture of a cat in my mind. And so if we say Jesus, everybody has everybody who knows of Jesus has a picture of Jesus. And there can't really be this duality like there's the cognitive and then imagination is bad. You have been and you've lived in this world between academia and pastoral uh, vocation. What do you do then when you hear the word experience? Because also in the background that I came from versus where I am now, you know, we can't trust experience. We can only trust the written word. Wow. I, I don't know how you divide that. I mean, honestly, how, how is it that you divide the written word from experience? Because the only way you get it is through experience, whether you're reading it or you're hearing it. Um, recently, I began to develop a spiritual habit. Because we are literate, and typically when we read, we read to ourselves. We read silently. But in the first century world, even the literate, when they would read, they would read publicly. They would they would verbalize their words. That's the way they read. So that story of the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, where he's reading, it sounds odd to us. But no, that's just the way people, the literate, even read. So I've gotten into a habit of now, uh, I'm working through the Psalms right now. And so I, I read the Psalm to me. And it's really interesting when you start hearing words, they come alive in ways that your eye passes quickly through. So I don't think you can read the scriptures without experiencing them. 
I don't think you can hear them without experiencing them. I don't, I don't see how you can divorce those two things, but I, but I get what you're driving at because some people in a, in a Western culture that prizes rationality, you know, which it, reason is a great gift of God, but somehow we've pitted reason against uh, our empirical experiences, right? As if they are somehow completely separate. When, when we know that biologically that's not true, <laughs> the only reason, the only way I can make sense of my experiences with reason and the only way I can understand anything is through experience. So I, I, I just, that, that, that wedge between the two, I think is really a false dichotomy. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that, but I remember how roughly 30, 33 years ago, Henry Blackaby, we're old enough to remember his book, Experiencing God, which became a runaway bestseller. And I remember in circles that I was part of through discipleship programs, there were people saying, ooh, you know, here's this, uh, this Baptist pastor telling people to, their feelings are the most important thing and that it's all about experiencing. And I just, I'm struck today by how you really can't separate that out. So the other part of your quote, you said, I'd rather hear about an embodied faith. Talk to me about embodied uh, spirituality. And also while we're at it, to talk about what's your definition of spirituality, because that word is thrown around a lot and it means a lot of different things to different people. Well, yes. So uh, an embodied faith is what John's uh, spirituality is, is based on, right? Because the word you know, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the, and the word he uses in Greek is logos. And what that word literally means is, is idea or concept. It's the word in your head, okay? And so in verse 14, when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he really mixes the metaphor. What he should have said is the logos became rhema, because rhema is the word that's spoken. So you have a word in your head and a word that is spoken, but he mixes the metaphor on purpose. The word became flesh, Oh my goodness. And dwelt among us. And he emphasizes this experiential reality. We beheld the glory of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. You know, this, this sense of seeing, uh, the word of God come flesh and then seeing the signs that he performed that was supposed to point to who he is. And the way he interacts with all these different characters in his God, in John's gospel is a way of, um, I guess, you know, seeing how faith comes alive in them. And that's what struck me about John's uh, spirituality. Um, you know, he, I, I say in the introduction, you know, he doesn't do discipleship like Matthew. Like in Matthew, Jesus goes on top of a mountain, preaches this massive sermon to the masses and basically talks about two roads. One's narrow, one's broad and summons people to follow him. He doesn't do that in John's gospel. In John's gospel, he basically makes disciples one by one. He comes to this person and talks about their world and, you know, engages with them in their story. And then he talks to this person. And so it's the characters themselves that I think reveal how the word becomes flesh. Because you see it. You see it come true in their life, like the blind man, right? There's this beautiful moment when the disciples are asking, why is this man born blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, well, let's talk, let's just talk about the past. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk about God's purpose for him. And while he's painting the blind man's eyes with mud, he says, I'm the light of the world. And as long as I'm going to be in the world, there's going to be light. 
So then this blind man becomes the incarnation of light, right? There's light brought to his eyes. And this language that we say we see isn't just empirical. It's, it's, he sees with eyes of faith. And so he is the embodiment of Jesus, the light of the world. And you see it, (laughs) you see it, you see it. And also at the same time, you watch the progressive blindness of the Pharisees who don't see it. So to me, John really very powerful believes that this kind of embodied faith wasn't just about Jesus becoming flesh and showing us God, but it's about the word becoming flesh in us. And, and therefore we abide in that word as the word abides in us. And it's an important word for John. So now, you know, so going then to, you know, the importance of, of, you know, experiencing the, the, our faith, it, it just seems to me that life comes at us constantly with the same issues that these characters face, death, grief, disease, disappointment, hopes, dreams, all the things humans long for. And, and to me, that's what an embodied faith is. That's what it means to experience our faith. It's more than simply something we see with our mind, but we see it lived out. And isn't it true that when God begins to produce in us by his spirit, qualities that are that are really, you might even say, foreign to us. I mean, it wouldn't be natural for me to live in a particular way, but all of a sudden he begins to, you know, to use Paul's language, conform the image of his son, or to use John's language, we see the word become flesh in us, and then we see him, you know, we end up incarnating everything that's that's desirable about what it means to be a follower of Jesus because he pictures what it truly means to be human. He pictures He's the best demonstration of what it means to be human. Then when that starts happening in us and we see it in the people we love, then before you know it, oh my goodness, we trace the hand of God, the finger of God, and we know where the story is going. We see, we see the narrative unfold. And uh, I think it's an incredibly beautiful thing. I do too. And we talk a lot um, in our ministry and on this podcast about how our mission statement is to help close the gap between what we believe and what we experience. And that as that gap gets closed, that's how God restores our soul and brings us more and more into the fullness of our, of our humanity that's being redeemed. But there's this very Greek idea that's still around that uh, physical and embodiment is bad and spirit is good. But my understanding is that the Hebrew idea of the soul is inclusive of body, mind, emotions, and will. And I have a real heart for the younger generations. I have a 24-year-old son and 19-year-old daughter, and we speak a lot about people that are leaving the church, you know, the nuns and the duns. And my experience is that it's this gap between what they believed or are struggling to believe and their everyday experience. And it's in that gap. That's why they're leaving. And that's why they're turning to other faiths or, or no faith at all. Um, And so this embodiment is what helps to close that gap as well. Yeah. And well, I mean, it's, here's another thing. It's non-threatening to kick ideas around. 
I mean, you can, you've got your idea. I've got my idea. Whether you're talking mythology, a myth, something that can't be seen, but it's a story that we believe is true, or the myths we're told that aren't true with regards to our history, our personal history, or even the myths that are embedded in American culture. I mean, there's all kinds of, of claims and we can kick them around and have arguments and, but in the end, that doesn't matter. You might win an argument, but it doesn't matter. What really matters <laughs> is a life well lived. That's what really matters. It's not what I think necessarily. It's a life well lived. And of course, an intentional life comes from uh, uh, the spiritual life of the mind. That's an important part. But it, it just seems to me that well, we have the best story. The gospel is the best story ever. And I and I think if we believed it, we would not only tell it, but we would live it. And it would be evident in the church. Yeah. And when there's this gap between faith and life, um, I'll suggest this. We live what we believe. <laughs> we, can cl- we can claim all kinds of things we think or believe, but we actually, the way we live our life, better reveals an embodied life, right? An embodied faith reveals what we really believe. And I think what we all need is a, a story, a redemption story that basically is what everything the human heart longs for. And again, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most beautifully powerful redemptive story ever. And Amen. On so many levels, right? On so many levels, it just... It, it's got beautiful plot twists. It's got engaging characters. It's got a, a, the main character in the story. And I believe all of this actually happened. I believe it's all true. So don't misunderstand my language of, you know, it's not fiction to me. It's real. But it only it only is real if I believe it for me. When that happens, Michael, that that's when I find my heart warm. That's when I find my mind transformed. That's when I see you know, lives changed, the good things of human flourishing, of joy and peace and hope and all the things we want. And we see embodied in him, we begin to embody as believers and forgiveness and mercy that go along with our shortcomings. And when we fall short with a sense that we're all moving in the same direction, we know exactly where we're going. You know, because as the cliche says, the last chapter has been written. We know where this ends. It ends with resurrection. And what better hope than that? Right. Yeah, that's the ultimate hope and not just um, resurrection after death unto life. That's the ultimate. But but that all of our deaths in this life, the the grief and the loss that we experience, the trauma, the abuse, the wounding, the divorce, all of the brokenness of life, that there's the potential for resurrection and redemption out of that as well. So it seems like the, the connecting point between how important it is to believe and to say yes to the story and yes to God's word in all of its forms, uh, the living word, the written word, even as you say, the word becoming flesh and how that spoke to us, that the connecting point between belief and experience is this this theme of John's writings of abiding. And not just in John 15, where it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, but uh, all throughout the scriptures, really, you see this theme that's there. So talk about uh, what it means to abide. 
when I was a young Christian, different translations, but what I was taught was that to abide means to dwell, to remain. Um, just unpack that a little bit. Yeah, it's both ideas. The thing, you know, abide is kind of an archaic word for us. We don't use it in our everyday parlance, do we, of English? Uh, where do you abide? But that's exactly where the story starts. And Greek students know this. Some of the simplest Greek in the New Testament is the letter 1 John. And and the word in Greek, I abide, minnow, is all over the place. And so the one that's the one word. You may not know much in Greek vocabulary, but if you, you'll learn that word minnow. And it has two meanings. There's an idea of taking up residence with, living with, sheltering with. So you're abiding with them. You're moving in with them. Abide also means to remain in the sense of persisting, enduring, finishing, abiding. So uh, John plays on both ideas that we uh, abide with Christ and that that we find home with him. As a matter of fact, when he tells his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. You know, I'm going to my father's house to prepare many rooms. And that word is abide, many abiding places. And so he shows us how to go home to the father and we follow him. We abide with him. But John also knows that abiding means persisting, especially in his absence. And so it's the absence of Jesus that shows up in the gospel. It's the absence that's obvious in one John and in the revelation. And this longing for finding shelter in his words so that we persist and endure to the end. Whether John's gospel is written to show us what that looks like on a one-on-one basis individually. His letters are written to show us how we abide together as a community of faith. The, The pronouns are plural throughout. And then the revelation shows us how to abide to the end. I would be remiss to not ask you to riff a little bit on John 15, 1, where Jesus says, I, I've often thought about how um, Jesus has this message that he's giving, but um, on the last 48 hours of his life, the message is instead of a sermon, it's a meal, and then it's him going out and illustrating with the vine and the branches, and then he gives us a mission, and the mission unlike Matthew, go out and baptize and make disciples, he basically gives this mission of abiding, which is pretty global. And I can kind of see the disciples scratching their head going, huh, that's it? Really? There's nothing else? So <laughs> talk, right. It's talk. A very different. That's, yeah, that's yeah, right. which is why I appreciate your book so much, is that spirituality, according to John, is it's the same story, but it's a whole different way of living it out, which God knew that we would need. But talk about what it, what it, it means, this idea of I am the vine, you are the branches, and remain. Yeah, and this comes, that teaching comes in the middle of a, a section that scholars call a farewell discourse. And it was common for philosophers before they left, they, they knew that they were getting ready to depart from the world, that they would sit down with their disciples you know, Socrates did this, it was said, and just give a farewell discourse. And so scholars have pointed out that John's doing that, that from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, uh, Jesus is giving this farewell, you know, he's leaving them. Okay. So the absence of Christ is the context for all that he says here. And isn't it ironic 
that he talks, you know, I'm leaving you. I'm going to go away and don't be troubled and all this. And where I'm going, you can't go, but you will later. And then I'll come back and all this talk of his absence. In the midst of that, the metaphor he gives is this connectivity. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And wait a minute. How can we be connected to you when you're leaving us? And he reduces it to his words. He said, if my words abide in you, then you abide in me as the word. So it's key. And so the metaphor of I'm the vine, you're the branches is this organic, obviously, connection that you can't have life without him. You can't have life without the word and you can't grow without his words. And so this idea of 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 being totally dependent upon him and also it works for the for the uh metaphor of fruit right he promises that they will produce fruit and yet strangely enough you never see the disciples produce that fruit in the gospel of john you don't see it so you go wait a minute when did that happen well here come the letters and i say that the letters are the place all these places where Jesus points to the future and says, this is what's going to happen. It shows up in the letters, the love commandment, what it means to truly abide, remain in him, tell the truth about him. And uh, so it, 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 the, the metaphor of I'm the vine, you the branches is a great way for him to encourage them that even though he's leaving them, that they're going to find all that they need in him because they have Christ, the word through words. So a brand new believer comes to you where you're a pastor and they say, pastor, I read this passage. I read this farewell discourse and it's really interesting. And here's this word abide in this picture of vine and branches. Help me to abide. What does it mean to abide on a daily basis? What would you say to them in terms of kind of instructing what that looks like? So I think I see and, you know, it's not it's not deliberate. It's not a list, but I see a progression in John's spirituality. So that's why I see it not only in the gospel, but in the letters and the revelation of John. If it's predicated on words, then words first have to be heard. So you need to spend time hearing the words. Then the second thing that starts happening is you see as the narrative unfolds is that these words become yours because you begin to confess. It's one thing to hear it. It's quite something else to confess. You say what is true about him. And the more you say what is true about him, you say what is true about you. He's very reflective that way. Mm. You know, he'll say, he even says, you know, how you respond to me reveals who you are. If you're a child of darkness, you, you'll be repelled. And if you're a child of light, you'll come to me. So there's a progression from hearing. You need to spend time hearing the words, the word of Christ. Then you need to spend time speaking what is true, confessing what is true. Then there's an incarnating that starts happening. When the word takes up flesh and dwells in you, you begin to live what you hear and you say. And that provides in a context for what it means to abide. And abide me and, and those who abide. And I pick this up in John's gospel. Abide in the word means you. The word ends up taking take up root and produces fruit in you that is beyond really anything you would have imagined. So that others begin to abide in Christ. Others are drawn to Him because they see the word in you. 
And especially the characters in John's gospel, the quintessential demonstration of abiding in Christ is you do the right thing without being told. It's organic. You're a vine that produces grapes. Why? That's just what vines do because you're connected to him. And so because you abide, others will come to Christ. Many have connected uh, this Johannian spirituality that you talk about in the book with a contemplative way of living. And we talked a little bit before the podcast that the, the Celtic tradition has talked about that it's focused on listening to the heartbeat of God. And that's not just how we deem it in the universe, you know, as it rings through sound waves, but listening to the heartbeat of God through the word. And in John 13, in that first chapter of the farewell discourse, we see that the unnamed disciple, because John would never talk about himself explicitly, that that uh, Jesus is talking about who's going to deny him. It's at that point where John is already reclining next to Jesus, which is a a first century uh, common practice. We don't understand that today. I don't think my wife would appreciate it if I reclined next to her at the dinner table. But then it <laughs> says that he, he lays his head upon Jesus' chest. So what is the role, uh, from your perspective, again, theologian and academic and pastor, especially in our world of busyness, about being still and knowing that he's God? And what role does that stillness and contemplation have to do with allowing it to be internalized in us, both embodied and uh, intellectually? Wow. Gosh, Michael, that's a huge question, isn't it? I mean, you brought in the Celtic tradition. You brought in this importance of the contemplative life. Let me just let me say two things. First, the life of the mind is a spiritual pursuit. We, we, you know, we, we tend to assign maybe uh, that kind of intellectual, robust life for those who are pensive. All of us live in our heads. All of us have a story going on in our heads. All of us are trying to make sense of the world. We're contemplating the parts of the puzzle that don't fit. We're trying to figure out, you know, what is the answer? Um, right. We're constantly doing that. And. I think part of what John would have us do, I, I say this in the book, the whole gospel almost functions like a parable where if you hear it and you can, you know, you hear it over and over again, you start using the stories you might say of, of the gospel. They get into your skin and you start thinking about the, the challenges of human life and you begin to think, you know, gosh, that reminds me of what, he said to uh, the nobleman from Capernaum, and all of a sudden, this idea of carrying a promise in your heart and thinking about it as you're going home sounds like my story. That sounds like my story. And um, so they reflect back to us. And I, so I think, you know, chewing on mentally on John's gospel, <laughs> thinking about it as a lens through which I try to make sense of my world. I found it to be incredibly relevant and helpful. The second thing I would say is this. Dan Reed, who was the longtime uh, uh, editor at IVP, and I started the project under him and he retired. And Dan's helped me with a number of projects with IVP. He, He told me that he'd been reading a biography about a Welsh Baptist missionary to China. The guy's name is Timothy Richard, 19th century guy. And he, he had the village uh, elders memorize scripture. And one group of village elders, he had them memorize Ephesians. 
And another group, he had them memorize John's gospel. And he said, he stood back and watched what happened. He didn't do it on purpose that way, but this is this is the result. The elders who memorized Ephesians basically became strong Calvinists. <laughs> and those who memorized John's gospel became lovable mystics. Mm. There it is. Yeah. Well, that's worth the price of the interview right there. Um, and it's not Wasn't like that. I- and I didn't know about that. <laughs> and Dan told me about that. He said, I was thinking about your book and I've been reading this biography. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's a beautiful anecdote that gets at the heart of the question you're asking. Right. That John assumes that we're going to have a contemplative life. That yeah. we'll want to hear, to sit and hear the word and then imagine and and then see it in our mind's eye. And before you know it, the word gets in our heart, in our soul, in our mind. We think about it and we start living. We learn through the scriptures of what it means to basically abide with Christ. Yeah, and that that's the longing of our heart, regardless of what we call it, to live in the, the certainty and the restfulness and the freedom of uh, of that oneness that we have as Christ in us as the hope of glory. Well, I wasn't going to say anything to to impugn any denomination, but there's a little book by Philip Newell, uh, who is controversial, granted, because a lot of the Celtic spirituality does focus uh, on, it incorporates a lot of the pre-Christian Celtic spirituality, but he talked about this Celtic listening to the heartbeat of God in contrast to the Petrine, what became the, the Roman Catholic Church, which was far more emphasized on, on doctrine, not Calvinistic. But that's fascinating to me. And it's interesting also because I've probably spent the last three years just reading the Gospel of John, and I, I can't get out of it. You know, and as the year ends and I'm like, okay, Lord, what book am I going to read this year? I just I just can't get out of it because I I think— <laughs> You really identified in the book, uh, Spirituality According to John, just the individual focus. And, of course, we need a collective focus as well, but it's focused on individual spirituality, these individual encounters. You wrote, the only thing that the 12 disciples do in the Gospel of John is abide with Jesus going wherever he goes. I think and you said the only exception was when one of them goes to get food or something. And then you say, but we never actually see the words of Christ abide in them. And you reference that, but like it's just one-sided there. And then it's after his resurrection and ascension that we start to see that. There was something hopeful about that for me because I go through some moods and some seasons where I don't feel like I'm very abiding in him. Uh, and yet he's still abiding in me. Very good. Exactly right. And so John's gospel in itself is open-ended. Even though he writes, you know, these things I've written so that you believe that he's the Christ, son of God, and by believing have eternal life, it ends with that strange chapter, chapter 21. And it just, it kind of opens up to the, and speaks of Peter's future and the beloved one's importance and how the beloved one remains until Jesus comes back. And it, it almost like I, I call it pointing, he, he points John chapter 22. There's the sense in which, if you will, the narrative arc continues and you find yourself, here it is, wanting to be a part of that story. So, when we want to be a part of it, it's like our favorite films. I want to see it again. I want to hear it again. Because, you're, Michael, what's happening is your your spirit is being um, 
full. Your your spirit is being drenched with with the word. And like he said, out of your being will come rivers of living water. You can never get enough. You can never get enough. So it makes perfect sense to me. I, I think John's having his effect on you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. As, as he for intended. Sure. <laughs> so let's wrap up with this. What what are one or two of your favorite stories in the the uh, the literature of John? Oh. Well, I love the blind man. I just I love that story so much. It's the longest story in John's gospel. He yeah. features it. It's even longer than Lazarus. All and Lazarus is an incredibly dramatic story. You'd think that miracle would have made the other three gospels, but think about it. If we weren't for John, we wouldn't know about the raising of Lazarus. But I love that story of the blind man, the irony that here's a man born entirely in sin, right? He's blind. He can't see a thing. He's never known what it has felt like to all of a sudden be the center of attention. And all of a sudden he's the center of attention because, and here it is. He didn't even ask for it. He was sitting there minding his own business. He even asked for help. He's an object of curiosity. The disciples asked a theological problem. Jesus pulls him into the orbit of what it means to be the light of the world. And that moment, <laughs> I love his sarcasm, that moment when they keep asking him, now he opened your eyes, tell us, who do you think he is? And then he goes, well, why do you keep asking? You don't want to be his disciples too, do you? <laughs> I, just, I love that. I just love that. I love it. So, and then they put him out and he's, he's back where he started, except the difference is now he can see. Well, then, Jesus then, comes, then they go to know, engage we, with his parents, right? So he gets in oh, trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then his parents right. get in trouble. That's right. That, so at the very end, when Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he goes, almost like, it's, yeah, Lord, if I, if I could see him. And he goes, well, you're looking at him. And then that, the way it wraps up beautifully, as the light says, I've come to bring light. So those who say they see will be blinded and those who know they're blind will see. And that's why his, his simple statement, once I was blind, but now I see that's our spirituality. We identify with him immediately, even though we have not gone through the traumatic experience that he did of being born blind. So for, for a variety of reasons, that just, that's just my favorite, favorite story. I also, can I throw this in Michael? I know we spent a lot of time on John's gospel I love the letters, but I really love the revelation of John. And it, it, se- it feels to me like John's revelation has been co-opted by TV preachers who misread it completely. And John's revelation is a beautifully powerful vision that requires a lot of imagination. He pulls back the veil to show us what's really happening in the world right now. And so the invisible world is being... Uh, clouded by the visible world of pretentious imperial powers that oppose God. And John shows us how indeed God himself is going to one day, even now, even now he is reigning among us because we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. But then one day God will uh, say, it is finished. I've had enough. And in the end, heaven comes to earth Earth is raised to heaven's purpose, and all the songs and all the lament and all the struggle and all those who followed the Lamb by giving their life because He gave His life find 
in the resurrection, everything we've longed for. I love that. So if you've got a couple more minutes, I just want to ask you about that because uh, first of all, and you, you referred to TV preachers, of course, there's the 50 million copy best-selling series left behind. And, and I won't critique that, but that does counter this different kind of position where there is something future oriented about revelation. No, no, uh, that's obvious, but you just said that it's about what's happening now. So I, I want to make sure that listeners don't lose that because to say, wow, the book of revelation speaks to us now, um, that's a that's a big deal. And then also heaven coming to earth. And as you said, that earth then fulfills uh, the kingdom purposes. Those are two things that we miss, but they're right there. Yeah. And that's the, that's the John's spirituality that shows up powerfully in the revelation. Um, you know, the, it, becoming a Christian is not about escaping the world and going to a spiritual place. It's about heaven coming to earth. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the revelation shows how this cosmic invasion is happening even now, that heaven is coming to earth, but then it'll finally reach its fulfillment when Christ returns and the enemies of God are defeated and uh, heaven is, uh, you know, earth is, is raised up. All creation will be raised. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. And that we, therefore, will enjoy the creation Eden resurrected, not Eden revisited. It is Eden resurrected. Here's a very simple way of, of just maybe one minute. Let me give you this. Most people make the mistake, I think, of reading Revelation as totally future and linear. Well, if you see it as totally future, <clears throat> then when you go to Revelation chapter 4, and you're witness, you're seeing God being worshipped. Are you saying that's only happening in the future? Mm. No, that's happening right now. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Plus, this thing starts out as a letter to seven churches. And God's word to them is the same word he would give us today. In other words, the message of Revelation would have made sense to them as much as it makes sense to us. So I think the visions are not, and this is a scholarly position, it's not original to me, they're not linear, they're, it's, a, it's called recapitulation, <clears throat> it's cyclical. We see the end of the world over and over and over and over until you get to the very end. So that's why it shows us what was, is, and will be. The more things change, the more they remain the same. So that every generation has been experiencing the revelation of John, beginning with the seven churches, even till now. And then one day it will be all over. So is any of this controversial in your circles? Because I agree with what you're saying, and it, I, it's, it's biblical, but you often don't hear Southern Baptist preachers talk this way because it's all just future, well, future, future. Yeah. So let me, let me just say it's not controversial among New Testament scholars, regardless of their tradition. I mean, you pick up any recent commentary on the Revelation, on the Apocalypse, and almost all scholars read it this way, because right. it's kind of obvious right. that you get the end. Like at the end of the seals, the seventh, there's this judgment scene that happens. And then at the end of the trumpets, there's this resurrection scene. You're going, wait a minute, I thought the judgment wasn't supposed to happen until the end. And so you see at the end of these visions, the end in microcosm. 
So what's this? What's the point? The point is God is indeed working his purposes even now. John puts it like this in his letters. Many antichrists have come, and you know the antichrist is coming. So there's a sense in which this story is being played out over and over and over again. And isn't it true? I'll put it like this. I'm teaching through Revelation to my church uh, on, on Wednesday nights. And I say to them, if you are a Ukrainian Christian right now, wouldn't you look around and go, oh, my gosh, it's the end of the world? Of course, because Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars and nations will rise against nation. This is what will happen over and over again. But one day God will say, I've had enough. And the kingdom of Christ invades, overcomes all the powers that oppose him. And earth is raised to his purpose. And we enjoy the resurrection of Christ and we reign with him over sin and death and evil. Well, I want to thank you so much for this podcast and for taking the time, but also um, for writing The Spirituality According to John. You also have um, books about Paul. And what's the what's the title of your book about Paul? Is it The Spirituality of Paul? There's one, Spirituality According to Paul, and I wrote that about 10 – it was published about 10 years ago. Okay. Um, and it, it's looking at how Paul understands uh, – his experience of the spirit, which is what spirituality is. It's experiencing the spiritual, the spirit of God. Um, and it's through the template of death, burial, and resurrection. So I, I talk about that in Paul's, in Paul's letters. And then I've written uh, several books with a couple of friends of mine, David Capes and Randy Richards. We've written a textbook called Rediscovering Paul, uh, wrote a textbook, Rediscovering Jesus. And there's some other things I've written, a commentary on Matthew's gospel for the story of God, Bible commentary. And, currently working on a commentary on second Corinthians right now. So, well, and so far, everything that I've read by you, it does have this pastoral aspect where it's about bridging that gap between just believing and experience and not just telling people, here's the correct interpretation. So thank you again for putting your heart and your life with God into your scholarship and not just information. Thanks, Michael. In my own spirituality, it's the scholars who had a heart for the church that's made the biggest difference in my life. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.